Hello and welcome to the Law Life Balance podcast with me, your host, Caitlin McPhee. The Law Life Balance podcast is here to help drive much needed change in the legal industry. We all know that lawyer well-being is at an all-time low and mental well-being is a particular concern. Sadly, one in 10 lawyers under 30 globally are experiencing thoughts of suicide and that is just not okay. But all is not lost. There are so many incredible people out there fighting to make the legal industry a happier and more sustainable place to work. And it is my mission to track them down and interrogate them on this podcast. So in season one, I'm speaking to thought leaders in the legal mental wellbeing space about what we can do to make lawyers' lives that little bit, or even a lot, better. So I really believe that coaching can help to support people to think, right, what is my goal here? And then breaking it down into smaller pieces to be able to then pick out, right, this is why I'm doing it. This is what I want to do. And the how as well is so important, coming up with a plan Mm -hmm. as to how to do it. Often when you talk to people who fear that, that they actually haven't yet tried to put in place their own boundaries or say no. And there's actually ways of saying no by saying yes. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, making it absolutely clear by saying what it is you will do that you are communicating also what you won't. Hi everyone and welcome back again to the Law Life Balance podcast, where this week I'm joined by yet another fantastic guest. This week I had the pleasure of speaking to Nikki Alderson, a former barrister with a 19-year career at the criminal bar, now a coach for women and a very experienced keynote speaker. Nikki has the most incredible story. After reaching a career crossroads whilst representing two men on death row in Jamaica, Nikki decided to pursue some coaching of her own to help her figure out her next steps. And that is what ultimately led her to becoming a coach herself. She now works to help retain women in the legal profession and speaks at various conferences and for various legal bodies on the subject. Have you ever wondered how you can be a parent and also a great lawyer? Or have you wondered how you can set your boundaries better so that you can be effective at work and also have the time to do all the things you want to do? If the answer is yes to any of these questions, then this is the episode for you. I'm not going to spoil it by telling you everything we talk about. Suffice it to say, Nikki is full of incredibly useful information for any lawyer out there. So give it a listen. Let us know what you think. Here's Nikki. Nikki, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. We organized this a while ago, didn't we? And it's taken a while to get here. Um, firstly, how are you today? I'm well, yeah. how am I? Gosh, yeah. that's a long story. But yeah, I I have the dreaded lurgy. I have mm. COVID, but I am doing well despite that. So thank you for asking. I'm all right. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're okay and that you can still be here today. So some, I bet actually most people probably won't know who you are of my listeners. So can we just start with a bit of an introduction to you and, you know, why you're here on the podcast today? Sure. Well, firstly, I'm here because of your very kind invite. And uh, I think uh, I came on your radar because um, I am a former lawyer, but also I am a coach, speaker and author who specialises in working with organisations, but particularly law firms and barristers chambers and also um, female professionals, but in particular lawyers, looking at how they can be retained in the profession 
but also how they can achieve their full potential in the profession. And really that has all come about as a result of all my own experiences and having not been retained within the profession myself and seeing sort of how I could help other people in a similar situation. So yeah. that's what I now do. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and so you talked a little bit there about, you know, your your background in the legal industry. Can we have a brief synopsis of that? And and I know that it's long and there are many stories to tell because I've read your book. But if we could have a brief summary, that'd be great. Absolutely. Well, I guess um, the journey to where I am now began, believe it or not, on death row in Jamaica. And it, it really was a question of having gone to do a voluntary human rights project when I was about eight years call that really sort of set the the tone for my future career and the reason for that was because I always had an interest in travel I was always very interested obviously as well in human rights and it was as a result of that that I went on this voluntary project and what was interesting about it was a lot of my colleagues were wondering why on earth I'd want to go and do something that was unpaid when I had a very busy court practice but it really did sort of um, fulfill something in me that the work I was doing at home didn't. Mm. But whilst I was out there, whilst I was working on one particular case, two men were actually convicted and sentenced to death. But long story short, they were in fact um, convicted against the weight of the evidence. There'd been a miscarriage of justice and they were ultimately um, found not guilty. But during the time that they were on death row, I was helping with the appeal both in England and back in Jamaica. I kept visiting um, over about three years and having come back after an experience like that, I'm pleased to say, I should say that they were ultimately released, Mm. um, no retrial order or or whatever. But after that, it was really difficult to fit right back into the groove that was my usual court practice of child sex cases and just getting on with life. So it was at that time I had coaching to kind of get my mojo back in the legal profession. And it was really, that was my first introduction to how useful it was as a, um, well, I don't know what you'd call it, an intervention, if you like, to, Mm. you know, look at your values and beliefs, your why, why is it you're you're working in the way that you are. And it really did reinvigorate me as well. Um, But equally, it interested me. So further down the track, I did a coaching qualification and planned to do it as a business. This was supposed to be the potted version, wasn't it? Um, oh, this is great. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the, the upshot of it was I did a coaching qualification for about two years whilst I was full time at the bar. Mm-hmm. And I met my husband very short, well, towards the end of me doing the qualification. So it was never really the right time to start a business. Mm-hmm. But then having gone on to start a family and gone back and forth to the bar a few times on mat leave and then returning full time I had a bit of a now or never moment and thought right if I'm going to do this as a business knowing how helpful coaching would be to so many lawyers generally but in particular women that I deal with Mm. um yeah I just thought okay I might not feel ready but it's time to just totally go for it and um it was at that point that I I decided to resign from Chambers and set up in business. So I've been going for just over four years now. 
Amazing. Congratulations. Thank it's you. a great achievement. What I really love about your story, and for anyone that wants to know more about this incredibly exciting part of Nikki's story, there's this amazing book she's written called Raising the Bar, which I have here. Um, and she talks about loads of useful stuff in there, which we'll get onto a bit later, but particularly about the story of being in Jamaica. So highly recommend. But what I love about what you just said is that, you know, you came back, you had these doubts about whether it was right for you and coaching really enabled you to stay and find, as you said, your mojo back again and, and that like life in the law. So you were able to continue. And I think that's something that a lot of people are scared of when they reach that point of, well, what am I doing here? Why am I doing it? If I have coaching, will I suddenly realize this isn't for me? And that's a fear that I hear people talk about a lot. So I wondered whether you could talk a bit about maybe what are some of those issues that cause people to feel that way and how can coaching help to reinvigorate them and find their place again in the legal industry? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, both personally and with clients, I I do experience or, or see it. I think, you know, having that career crossroads moment is so, so common, actually, although many people may not talk about it openly. And when you're in the thick of it, right in the treacle, sometimes it feels like I cannot go on. I cannot see a way forward. And therefore, the only thing to do is to step off and and, and move out. But actually, I genuinely believe, even though I have now left, that it is absolutely possible um, to make a career in law work for you if your love for law is still there. Mm. Uh, it may be a question of, coaching is a great intervention for looking at you know how you manage your practice your time you know I do a lot around time ownership boundaries learn Mm. to say no you know all of these topics and also as well especially for barristers where you often come in as a pupil then you get tenancy and then you've got what looks like a maybe a 15 20 year gap between becoming a a silk or a judge and it's a Mm. huge expansive time when you are just 22 23 years old possibly Mm. um to then think about career progression career strategy so I really believe that coaching can help to support people to think right what is my goal here and then breaking it down into smaller pieces to be able to then pick out right this is why I'm doing it this is what I want to do and the how as well is so important coming up with a plan Mm. as to how to do it and of course it may be that having done all of that and had a crack at it for a year, two years, five years, or in my case, what was it? Probably about eight years, another eight years. You may then again come to the point, you know, this is not for me. But at least, you know, you've given it your absolute mm. best shot at trying to adjust things, to tweak things and to make it right for you. So that when and if you do decide to step off, it's a positive decision as mm. opposed to a negative decision. So that's really why I find coaching is so much more helpful because it gives you, but literally it empowers you to make positive rather than negative choices. Absolutely. It's that kind of hashtag no regrets piece, isn't it? It's, Absolutely. You don't want to leave thinking, oh, actually, I wish that I'd tried a bit harder or thought about it differently. And what if I had stayed? If you've gone through that process and you know that you're making that decision on the basis of all the possible information you could have available within yourself, you can leave going, well, I gave it my all and I know that this path forward is the right one for me at this point in time. And the other thing to acknowledge is, is that, you know, as, as lawyers, you can always go back, right? We have this amazing fallback to be able to say, 
oh, maybe I do actually want to do that. So it's never, it's never a decision that's kind of set in concrete. It's always something you can change. Yeah, that's true. But you know, one thing that struck me when you said that, though, was that one really big, significant part of my journey was actually making the decision to leave Chambers altogether. Yeah. Because when I had my business to start with, I still had a place in Chambers. And Mm. there was something, I think, holding me back and maybe also clients back coming to me because there was always a bit of a fallback position you're absolutely right it was helpful at the time because it gave me the confidence to think Mm -hmm. well if it all goes wrong I can always go back but actually you know if we were talking about starting a new business for, for me in that instance leaving was one of the best things that I ever did actually for my coaching business because people knew I was there to stay and Mm. and that was it a commitment and well you know here we are four years plus later exactly and you know not to mention that it's completely terrifying but (laughs) I completely resonate with that because you know I'm doing it right now I've literally just left Linklaters and here I am full-time on my own business and I, I remember when I was thinking about leaving I was thinking well maybe I'll just do some legal consultancy like just you know keep those hours up and keep my practicing certificate and then I had this realization that if I don't throw myself in fully, nobody else is going to believe in me fully. So mm. you kind of have to dive in and it's terrifying, but you hope you've done enough work both on the business and on yourself internally to, to know that you can make a success of it. Absolutely. But yeah, I resonate a lot with what you're saying there. Yeah. And yeah, it's tricky. One thing I wanted to pick up on that you talked about earlier was this point around boundaries and saying no. Mm. And something that I get challenged on a lot by my friends and colleagues, people that I speak to is, but I, how is it possible for me to set boundaries and work reasonable hours when the work is just too much? There's too much work for me to do. The client demands this work. I have to do it. Mm. It's not possible for me to have these sensible hours. It's not possible for me to say no, particularly at the junior end of the profession. Mm. I wondered what you would say to that what would what would be your advice on that when people have those thoughts yeah well I do understand that there are times in your career when it is more challenging to set those boundaries out especially as you talk about when you're junior and you are effectively in a position where you might need to well you feel like you need to prove yourself you know I see it often with pupil barristers and sort of going above and beyond to show that they're a team player and and all the rest of it What I would say, though, is that often when you talk to people who fear that, that they actually haven't yet tried to put in place their own boundaries or say no. And there's actually ways of saying no by saying yes. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, making it absolutely clear by saying what it is you will do, that you are communicating also what you won't And so what I always encourage people to do is have a very clear idea of what is acceptable and communicate all that you are happy to do straight away in a very positive way, because that Mm. will be so much better received Mm -hmm. than by giving a huge list of no's or, you know, I've got to knock off at five o'clock or blah, blah, blah. So I always invite people to sort of reframe that, Mm. you know, equally, I know it's really important to say yes to opportunities. So when I say about learn to say no, I'm not one to be saying to people, don't do things that 
you know, would give you opportunity to do X, Y, or Z. I think Baroness Hale talked about it in a, in a recent um, discussion at Leeds University. But you can say yes to things and then become the office lapdog. Mm-hmm. Equally, if you're very senior, you might get asked to do something that is well below your pay grade, which actually is a reputational damage type of situation. So, you know, I guess it's a, a, a fine line but I would encourage people to think, right, A, what will I do? How will I communicate that? And actually try and communicate it because what I find recently, I could just think of a few people who've come to me recently, two women specifically I'm thinking of at one particular firm, which will remain nameless. And they believe that there weren't enough hours in the day, clients were demanding all this stuff, X, Y, Z. It was, they were really overwhelmed and overburdened. But actually they realized ultimately that they were people pleasers and they had Mm. never actually attempted even to say no. Or even if you don't say no, say, well, I will do it, but it'll be next week. And in between times, maybe you could push, put that inquiry to somebody else. Yeah. And actually on that point, you know, just as an aside, and I mentioned it in my book, there is a, another book, by a guy called Greg McEwen or Jeff McEwen, I can't remember now, called Essentialism. Mm-hmm. So if any of your um, listeners haven't seen that and are interested in it, chapter eight, I remember it because I often recommend it to clients. It's all about learning to say no and how we can do that without actually saying those two little letters that seem so offensive to so many people. Yeah. Um, and giving lots of different examples about how you can do it without actually being difficult, obstreperous or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Absolutely. So incredible advice I actually got that book on my bookshelf to read so I've just bumped it up my list yeah exactly there are so many things that you said in there firstly I can I, it really touched a nerve when you were saying the point around you know you don't always have to say yes to every opportunity my grandmother used to say never turn down an invitation because you won't get invited again mm. and it stuck with me as part of my patterning for mm. a really long time and I never said no and at some point I had this realization that oh, maybe granny wasn't right. Mm. Like maybe that wasn't the best mm. advice, but it's tough, right? If that's the way that you've been brought up, the way you've been conditioned to behave, mm. you don't question those things. You just say yes. And I also love your point around, you don't have to say no by saying no. There are mm. so many ways of saying no. And often it's about, as you said, setting that boundary that's that is the boundary that works for you but saying it in a way that is framed as positive Mm. so using more positive words as you said because that's so much easier for the recipient to receive rather than saying no I won't come to the party it's thank you so much for the invitation to the party Mm. I would love to come unfortunately this time I can't but please think of me next time Mm. such an easier thing to receive than no I don't want to come to the party granny like listening up there (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I get your granny's point, but I I think, you know, if she caveated her advice with, you know, if you have a goal and Mm -hmm. that invitation or opportunity fits in with that overall goal, then absolutely she she was right. But equally, if it doesn't, if it has the, if it presents as an opportunity that may end up diminishing people's respect for you or, you Mm -hmm. know, or or, or causing you to be burnt out, then absolutely, you know, that it's important that you manage your time better in that absolutely Mm. one thing I wanted to pick up on is something that you really champion in your book is flexible working Mm. 
Mm. and particularly for women. And I think it's really interesting to talk about this now in the wake of the pandemic and flexible remote working, especially having been something that we've all become accustomed to. What is it about flexible working that you think is so important? And how do you think that the industry can now capitalize on what it's learned from COVID? Mm. Well, you know, it, it just starts off from the simple baseline, doesn't it? That flexible working makes working, especially in the legal industry, so much more accessible to so many more people. I know that there are you know, obvious points that would need to be looked at in terms of, you know, this whole um, presenteeism idea and, you know, important decisions being made whilst um, in the office and those that are working remotely and perhaps might not be involved in those. But mm-hmm. equally, I think we can learn so many lessons from the pandemic. You know, 18 months ago, if you'd have asked most of the major law firms about, you know, how well whether they thought flexible remote working was a good idea a lot of the um top firms would probably say no it isn't but actually Mm -hmm. you know when push came to shove and a global pandemic hit absolutely everybody including equity partners in law firms had to do it goodness me how we've surprised ourselves you know we've 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 made 50 years worth of progress haven't we in terms Mm -hmm. of how we've been able to access Um, the office remotely Mm. and it just seems to me it would be such a great pity that that is not capitalized on and I know that there are still huge calls even now to go back into the office but there surely must be some call um, overall to say well we have the evidence that it does work And, Mm. and secondly it has been proved that it helps particularly caregivers and therefore mainly women to remain a useful part of the workforce um you know so so if not now when yeah is what I'd say couldn't agree more with that um and particularly on that point around the majority wanting to have this remote working stay uh, don't quote me on the stat I think it is something in the in the 60 60 percent of people Mm. that want to have this hybrid structure at least Mm. but one thing I wanted to ask you about which is again something you write about in your book is this topic of digital distraction. Mm. And I think that the potential downside to us now being able to work completely remotely is that that has been facilitated by technology. Mm. So now what that means is that in order to be working, we have to be constantly using technology. Mm. And you talk about how digital distraction is something that we should, should seek to remove as much as possible in order to be healthy and happy and productive how do you think that these two things now can can work together? Because in my view, digital distraction becomes much more problematic mm. when you're working remotely using technology all the time. Mm. So how can we try not to fall prey to digital distraction when working all the time with technology? Well, like you say, I absolutely accept it's a fine line here because, you know, you and I wouldn't be talking right now if it wasn't for the, you know, yeah. uh, technology remote technology and so on and equally you know the the pandemic has sorry women and their accessibility to working has remained possible because of remote working but you're absolutely right I think it comes back down to this issue around boundaries because you know we, we don't now let's say have our commute to work 
So, you know, I, I always laugh to myself because I now start work at half past seven in the morning. Mm-hmm. And when I was commuting to work as a barrister, if anyone rang me, frankly, before quarter to nine in the morning, I thought it was utterly rude. <laughs> and now, you know, if I have if I don't have a coaching call at 8 a.m., I think, oh, God, I'm a bit quiet today. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I do accept it's, you know, a bit of give and take here. But I do think that, well, there are two things that in particular we need to think about. Firstly, as an individual, you know, what we can do, again, to get our boundaries in place. And if that means, right, you know, we're not going to have our notifications pinging every five seconds. Um, You know, it might be keeping out of your inbox for certain times in the day, you know, doing, doing block checking of inboxes and so on. But being absolutely clear once again of, when it is you're going to allow that distraction in so so you keep control of that distraction you know the legal world of whoever it may be is unlikely to implode within one hour for example if you allow yourself one hour out of your inbox with your notifications turned off and even dare I say with airplane mode engaged Mm -hmm. but equally you know from an organizational point of view what we can do is think more about who our role models are, what the messages are that we give from leaders down the hierarchy and Mm. how our behaviour may impact on those who are junior. You know, you've talked about, obviously, trainees, for example, might think, well, oh, if they're working all the time, then, excuse me, I know that's the expectation that that I should be. But, you know, championing people. I mean, I think it was recently, who was it? Was it PwC? Or KPMG, there was there was a, a big partner in some firm who basically said, you know, he, he couldn't take part in a certain meeting because he was, you know, doing some exercise class or something. So he was prioritizing well-being, if you like, as opposed mm-hmm. to this particular meeting. And I know it's difficult for junior people to assert themselves in that way. Yeah. But equally, you know, if we as leaders think, right, I have an opportunity here to think, right, shall I send this email now at 9 p.m. just because I happen to be writing it now or do I as I now often do put delayed send I mean Mm. it's annoying because I can't do it on my mobile for example so if Mm. I happen to be in bed not able to sleep I might be fiddling about on my phone which again probably isn't a great for digital distraction Mm -hmm. but on the laptop you can always set a delayed send and so maybe you know that could just be a very small thing to do that we could consider other people Mm. um and, you know, yes, we have to take responsibility for ourselves and how we accept the distraction. But equally, when we are giving the distraction to somebody else, we also need to take responsibility that way as well. Mm, completely agree. And that's kind of answered a question I had for you, which was around how much of this change is on the individual and how much is on the, the culture and the environment. Mm. And I think what I've heard you say there is actually it's on it's on both but it's on the individual who's experiencing the difficulty and also the individual who's the person inspiring that individual. So as leaders, it's so important, as you've just said, to behave in the way that you would like other people to behave in the sense that if you want your staff and employees to be well and happy, then do the things that you need to do to be happy and well and give permission for other people to do that too. Because the thing that's always a sticking point for me is, well, if we can empower juniors as much as we like with all of these amazing skills to set their boundaries and look after themselves, but if the permission isn't there for them to do that and the consequences are always going to be negative on their career progression, they're not going to do it. 
And that's when you start to encounter massive, massive problems. So what do you think? I mean, you've mentioned a couple of them, but really as leaders, what are some of the things that you really need to be thinking about in order to create that environment for, for all of your staff? you know I think it comes back to this point doesn't it about walking your walk um not just talking your talk and you know really championing those um leaders who are working flexibly who are you know I don't know managing childcare responsibilities around partnership or or whatever and making them the norm or or that Mm -hmm. that becomes you know totally acceptable as opposed to what you sometimes see which is still you know a lot of prejudice um towards people who are in that position I mean you know two examples I often give is um uh there was a a partner in a law firm who was a female partner promoted while she was on maternity leave but came back I think to work maybe four days a week and there was a particular meeting that she hadn't been invited to um, I think maybe because it was on one of her non-working days and she was asking why and somebody joked well we, we assumed you'd be at soft play I mean things like mm. that need to be called out you know it, it's not acceptable it, it the, the the other side of it is um, a man who um, spoke on a panel event I was um, at a, a while ago now he was working again part-time having done shared care whilst his child was at home then his child went to school, had one day off a week and really was finding a lot of prejudice around, you know, quite people questioning his um, commitment to the job and mm-hmm. his ambition. And, you know, why do we have this feeling that people are any less ambitious because they're working differently, mm-hmm. you know, or that they do take time off to have a family? It's all this whole thing around I don't know billable hours targets that the race to the top being a sprint as opposed to a marathon and I really Mm. think that you know just because you do things differently doesn't necessarily mean that you are any less ambitious and so wherever there's an opportunity to to shine a light on the people that are doing those sort of things successfully then that's you know what we need to do Mm. Um, and you know everyone does things differently you know and people work at different times and so on but it's just about being considerate and thinking that there isn't just one and only way Mm. especially now after the pandemic you know where I think people are seeing there is a different way yeah completely so I'm interested to hear a bit about why you decided to particularly focus on helping women Mm. Um, and so where, where did that come from and what is it that you particularly like to help women with well, I think, you know, it comes down to two things. Firstly, the, you know, retention stats and, and knowing how, what a big um, challenge it is for women to stay in the legal profession. You know, what, what, last time I checked, it was 52% of women, um, sorry, 52% of new entrants were women. Then it was down to something like uh, just under 20%. 20% were equity partners you know in terms of judges it's about 21% circuit judges and so on and so forth so there's clearly something mid-level that is mm. going wrong either that the leadership positions are not attractive to women or there mm. is something within the legal profession which is preventing women from getting to those positions so it was firstly that that um, attracted me um, to focusing specifically on women and secondly I guess my own experiences and knowing how 
you know, the things that I'd encountered, particularly as a working parent, but not not just actually as a, as a mother, um, but that, that could really help women, especially around this whole point about career progression and also things that we've talked about, you know, time ownership, boundaries mm. and all that sort of stuff. So really, I just felt from my own experience, I was better placed to help women. But that's not to say, by the way, I, I don't coach or, or haven't coached men. I, I, I do when I have. But equally, I think that there's something about being able to talk the same language, having shared an experience as well, which sometimes makes people gravitate towards you as well. Mm. Absolutely. And I like that you raised the point around the fact that, you know, it's not just women who suffer when they become parents, it's men too. And that, and sometimes men more so because it's not so expected that they'll take the time out. And as firms are starting to adopt much better shared parental leave policies, more and more men are taking up these opportunities, but they're going to end up having the same concerns around how does this limit my career progression? What about the people that wouldn't do this and don't agree? Mm-hmm. So it's becoming an, you know, a, a topic that affects everybody. But yeah. one thing that it's always struck me is that in some senses, it seems like there is a little bit more flexibility and permission for women who are mothers or men who are fathers. Um, to leave early to do the school run to whatever but for people who've decided they don't want to have children or they can't have children they don't have those same privileges so that's a something that's always struck me as something that we need to think about and change and be very mindful of I I think that's a really good point because what I always think about is when I was single at the bar and how I used to work compared to how I then worked when I had children and I was that person who would often be asked to do last minute returns because often I would be more available Mm. I would be the person who was the last to leave chambers you know locking the chambers door and putting the alarm on because I'd wait until maybe seven o'clock finish off my work and then go home so I chose in those days to sort of leave my work at home Um, but then when I became a mother having to do the nursery run, run or whatever, if anything came in beyond half past four or five o'clock, it's like, well, I am unavailable now until 7, 7.30. Mm. And so, yeah, absolutely, it, it does change. And, you know, I wonder whether reflecting back, back in the day, you know, I could have been a little bit more assertive myself about, well, actually, I do have to go out for dinner with friends or to the theatre mm. or whatever, because that is important for my well-being. And actually, yeah. the number of times when I was in practice, when I would always caveat any social arrangement with subject to work, of course. Always, and, yeah. Oh, yeah, always. And, and just knowing that, I don't know how many, well, would I say 50%, maybe 75% at the time, I, I would have to cancel. Yeah. yeah. And now, as a coach, I don't think I've ever done that. I have never not you know gone to a social event because of work Mm -hmm. um, which is is quite interesting isn't it it's about thinking about what is the purpose of you having that boundary whatever it's for and the purpose is so that you can meet those other parts of yourself that you need to meet whether that's your role as a parent or the date you go on to meet the person that you end up becoming a parent with Mm -hmm. any of those things and it's really common to see people especially women get into their thirties, they've worked super, super hard and then start panicking about the fact that they don't have a partner, they want children, they haven't thought about it, but it's not okay for them to set those boundaries to go to the party or go on the date. 
So I do think there's something we need to change around that mentality. And I don't know about you, but something else that has, it's all, that has always struck me is part of this seems to be a direct result of this kind of everything now culture that we now live in. We can have dinner delivered to our door within 10 minutes of pressing a button on our phone. We expect everything to be immediate. I get onto the tube platform and if there's more than a five minute wait for the tube, I am not okay with that. At what point did we decide that it was a problem to to wait five minutes? Mm -hmm. And this has translated into a work culture of, well, I sent you an email 20 whole minutes ago. Where is my response? Yeah. So there's a real cultural bit. Yeah, I mean, it then comes back to, doesn't it, sort of uh, setting boundaries the other way to maybe challenge that expectation, you know, especially when dealing with clients, you know, yes, demanding clients, but, you know, if you say to them, right, well, I am unavailable, let's say between um, nine and 12, but I will respond to anything between 12 and one. Again, Mm -hmm. you are instantly just creating a boundary between them and, and whatever expectation it is. They can send four emails, whatever, but again, yeah. the legal world is not going to implode if they have to, well, in some cases it might if it's a very important yeah. case, but you, you get the point that it'll wait a few hours as long as you've communicated that to them. And, mm-hmm. and just by doing those small changes, hopefully it would, you know, be a ripple effect over time. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I don't know how long it would would take but (laughs) well we'll see hey but the important the important thing in what you just said is the bit around well I'm not available in this time but I am available in this time so it's don't just say no give the opportunity of when you are and you almost don't have to give a reason Mm. of why you're not available it's I'm really sorry I can't do this but I could do that exactly I think that's a lovely note to end the majority of the chat on, Nikki. Do you have time for me to run through the rapid fire questions with you that I always I ask do. at the end? I do. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, let's go. So what does work-life balance mean to you? I, I don't know whether my answer is going to be rapid fire here, but because I have no a problem. problem with the term work-life yeah, balance. Right? A lot of people do. Yeah, Hit me. My, my problem is um, that the phrase suggests that there's some kind of inherent trade-off between the two yeah and I genuinely believe that if we have it right in terms of our work is something that we love then there should be no differentiation between work and life because if you Mm. love what you do you love who you are in what you do then there is no work-life balance Mm -hmm. so when I talk about it um in terms of webinars and so on it's life balance and and so for me yeah it's um everything feeling in sync both work life everything because it's all incorporated yeah. and encapsulated together yeah totally and I've had people call it different things work life integration mm. I think the important thing that I've always said is that firstly it means different things to different people and that's the purpose of asking this question on this podcast is because everybody says something different which I love and the other thing is and this draws back to our conversation around boundaries the important thing is that within that whatever you call it life balance you set the boundaries that mean that you have the time to do the things that you need to do for your well-being so even if you know work is your life and it's great you've got to have that time out for you Mm, absolutely yeah I agree thank you for that answer if you could change one thing about the legal industry what would it be well, that's a quick one. Uh, billable hours, culture and the traditional business model. Mm-hmm. Great. Not the only person to have said that. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment? 
so uh, it does make me laugh this because I think I don't know whether it's because becoming a lawyer I read less but I I've just finished um the secret thoughts of successful women by Dr Valerie Young and man's search for meaning by Victor mm. Frankl mm. but next on my list and beside my bed but I have yet to start it is Dare to Lead by Brenny Brown oh, so, um, so good to dying, diving into that amazing I love Brené Brown anything by Brené Brown it's great yeah. um what's one new hobby that you would love to try so I really rack my brains anticipating this question because you know as a person who has skydived and bungee jumped in the past I I really am struggling to think of anything hugely <laughs> entertaining in terms of hobbies I'd like to take up honestly it literally comes down to um being able to go I think as a family on a family bike ride because I recently bought a bike in lockdown um I'm not hugely confident on it um, because it's been that long since I've ridden a mountain bike but my little one has got such little legs he can't properly ride a bike without having to swing himself off to stop so if his (laughs) legs would grow just like another inch we could all go as a family you know and we, we could all like go in a long train of bikes without me having to walk beside him and, and catch him. So yeah, I think it would be as simple as a family bike ride would be I a love that. Thing to do. What a nice answer. Feed him, feed him some more growth stuff and hope for the best. <laughs> Spinach or whatever it is. Uh, okay. One thing the world needs more of is. I would say um, good music and good humor. I, oh, I just think that. you know in in COVID especially when you think back to the the moments that sort of cheered me up if all it was was the Marsh family singing what was it called totally fixed where we are you know I just thought it was just so wonderful and uh, yeah we could definitely do with a bit more of that I think. Yeah amazing music is so powerful isn't it it can transform the dullest moment. Indeed. And therefore contrastingly one thing the world needs less of is yeah well that would be divisiveness um either on the world political stage or mm. on dreaded social media i couldn't agree more yeah mm. yeah it's that like that us and them thing Absolutely. that we really need to change yeah okay money being no object what's one other career you would have loved to pursue well, you know, I think this is a really difficult one, again, for me to answer quickly. You know, in a nutshell, I have already gone through a career change and yeah. I have made significant changes in my working life to ensure that I do love what I do and I am very fortunate. So in that respect, honestly speaking, I, I couldn't say that there is anything I would rather do, mm-hmm. um, especially with, you know, my, my home life, my family life being as it is. But I think you know in terms of a wish list it might be something that would involve a bit more travel maybe a bit outdoorsy you know um but still with the ability to you know go to lovely places but spend time with my family but honestly speaking I I can't specifically think of anything that I would rather be doing than what I am right now isn't that amazing Mm, something for everyone to aim for yeah (laughs) a quote or a saying that you love is Oh, well, yeah, there's no contest here. It has to be one of the mantras or positive affirmations that I say all the time. And it's, if it is to be, it's up to me. And that's in the very beginning of your book, isn't it? I think it's line one. Important one to me, that. Yeah, love that. It's very empowering. 
from a personal responsibility perspective. Yeah. Um, there won't be one, I know, but one thing that you do to look after your well-being is. Yeah, I mean, it would have to be, um, well, I say weekly exercise, whatever form that takes. I was previously a runner or circuit trainer, but certain health challenges have come up. So now I am a, a cyclist and a Pilates mm. person. Um, but yes, yeah, something that involves movement or, you know, outdoor type exercise um, yeah. where possible. Great. Hugely important. Mm. One day that you'll never forget is... So, yeah, that, well, two days, I guess, all linked. The time that I saw the Jamaican defendant after he'd been stabbed on death row 23 times and he'd just come out of hospital and was being returned back to death row. But equally tied in with that story, that's the negative. The positive is the day that I found out that his appeal was granted and I knew that he was free. Mm. So, yeah. So amazing really people read the book and the story it's really so good um and finally one thing you are most grateful for right now is family yeah could have guessed that one has been a thread (laughs) (laughs) amazing Nikki thank you so much for sharing all of those um before we tie up and disappear and I let you go on about your day of homeschooling god knows what else you've got on bless you um if people want to find out more about you, how can they do that? So I'm active um, on social media, so they can either find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, or they can use my website, www.nickyaldersoncoaching.com. Um, or yeah, drop, drop me an email, nikki at nickyaldersoncoaching.com. So. Amazing. And as usual, folks, I will link to all of those things in the show notes, including Nikki's amazing book. Nikki, thank you so much for joining today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Caitlin. Thank you so much for inviting me. It really has. We made it. If you stayed to this point, thank you. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And I'm always super grateful for your support. You can stay tuned with all of the Law Life Balance updates at www.law-lifebalance.co.uk, including the show notes and links to all of my wonderful guests. And if you particularly like today's guest, do follow them through their channels and reach out if you want more information. I'll see you back here soon for the next episode of the Law Life Balance podcast.